Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 350 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to David Hawkins of Jim Jam Games, Michael Herrera and Scott Adams of Clopus, and Chris Skaggs of Soma Games about the joys of text adventures stroke interactive fiction, wherever you want to call them. We chat about the games they've made, which is Adventureland XL, Eye of Borek, and Lost Legends of Redwall, Escape the Gloomer based on an original piece of text or novels, rather famous ones. This is a very special episode. This is episode 350, after all. And Dave, who's been on the show before, asked me if I'd like to host a bit of a discussion about how text adventures have evolved since they first came into being way back in the early 70s. Um, because that's one of the earliest video games, computer games, maybe we should call them that, that was ever made. It's up there with um, the likes of Space Wars. In fact, we have someone who on the show, and by the name of Scott Adams, who actually almost uh, was a uh, at the vanguard of making these games. And he's been at it for a very, very, very long time. And also I'd like to point out, sadly, Scott's mic is a little bit muffled. More than a little bit, very muffled. And it might be a little bit difficult to understand what he's saying. I'll try to do my best to clear up the audio, but I can't promise anything. Apologies for that. However, he does have to say some very interesting things. You talk about some very nuanced aspects of the creation of text adventures. Because they are a means of interacting with a work of fiction. You are making decisions and you then make the decision. You have to stand by those decisions as you make your way through the game. And it was a fascinating discussion about how these games have evolved over the years. And also what's really interesting is what stayed the same 
even after all these years of their of the, when they first came to be, they, we kept on doing what they do, uh, which is create and paint a world with text principally, and also sound. Now, uh, a lot of the uh, sounds you're going to be hearing on this show, there's going to be some normal snippets of uh, of things as we normally do, but uh, yeah, it's it's going to be quite a thing. Quite a quite a quite an episode, and we are releasing it one day early. So thanks for listening. Episode three five one will be following the next day, as always. Don't worry, but this isn't going to be a regular Thursday thing. I thought, no, let's get this out now, rather than wait another six seven weeks or something, because that's where it was in my backlog. Anyway, enough of that. Chris, take it away. Hi, hey. I'm. Hi, I'm Dave Hawkins. I'm um, lead developer for Jim Jam's games. Um, we've created quite a number of games. I think um, Chris and I have already chatted about similar things. Um, but really, this is our first collaboration with um, other um, companies. And we chose to uh, collaborate on the text adventure or interactive fiction side um, because I personally feel it's um, a genre that deserves a lot more exposure um and that's really what i'm hoping that we'll be able to get from this sort of bundle and um any sort of additional um chat and um, exposure that we actually get so really that's my brief introduction about why i did this so over to mike i guess hello everyone i'm mike sorry Yep, go ahead. <laughs> Good. Sorry. Uh, I'm Mike. I'm musical director for Jim Jam Games as well. So I collaborate with Dave with uh, with quite a few few different things. So I'm mainly mainly in the audio side, but we do do some development as well, bounce ideas off each other. So it's uh, it's a lot different from sort of normal music things. You've got to basically my job is is it's done well if no one notices it. So. I'm always there in the background trying to trying to get stuff done. Yeah, sound design is a much underappreciated skill. And uh, mm. it's, it's quite a thing. And I've been playing a few games now that really lean into it more than ever. There's a there's a game called Hell Let Loose, which is basically a team World War II game. And uh, the whole thing is anchored around the sound design direction because it's one of those muzzle flash games where if you see a muzzle flash, you'd probably be dead. Uh, it's one of those high sort of simulation things. So you really need to know where the bullets are flying from very quickly. So mm. uh, hats off to you and your, and your fellow kin, if you like. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, Thanks. Mike from Clopus. Yeah. Uh, well, hi, I'm Mike from Clopus. Um, I am the community manager and uh, game designer for Clopus. And I've been here for about three years. And uh, we're really excited to uh, do this interview with you. As are we. Thank you very much for coming on the show because it's very, very special edition. It's wonderful to have so many creatives in one spot uh, to talk about a very, very important genre. So, Okay, so Chris. Uh, presumably that's Chris? me. Yeah, so yep. uh, I'm Chris, Chris Gaggs from Soma Games. And uh, I'm, I'm really actually interested in what's coming up with, uh, with interactive fiction. So this is great timing. So I'm excited about it. Okay, and Scott. This uh, Scott Adams, um, probably uh, one of the uh, oldest developers in this group since I was one of the original founders 
of the whole computer gaming industry with Adventure International back in the late 1970s. And now I'm uh, a developer and CEO with Focus, and I'm excited to be here. Take it away. Brilliant. Chris, um, Chris O'Regan, <laughs> you Thank lead you. from now. I, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, host of the Sausage Factory for the past uh, eight years or so. But yes, that is what I do and other things. But yes, that's also stream and, and for the for Kane and Rinse. But yeah, I'm an editor and I do feature writing and stuff like that. But um, which I've been doing for many years as well. But thank you all for coming on the show. And um, uh, what I like to do is sort of set the scene for everyone so the audience understands where where everyone comes from, what their what their drivers are. So very briefly, very briefly, if I, if I may, but um, could uh, just go around from Dave onwards the same sequence we've done before. A little little bit of a bio of yourselves and where you where you made your start into this uh, realm of video game creation. How did you make your start making video games? Very briefly, if you might. Okay, very briefly. Well, mine goes right back to um, 1980, really, when I was introduced to the Commodore PET at school. Um, and then very rapidly afterwards, um, my parents bought me a ZX81, if you remember such a thing. Um, and from there on, I was pretty much hooked with um, game development. Uh, very, very brief summary. My first game was published, I think, in 1984. Um, and I published three or four games throughout the um, uh, 80s. Um, and it really led on from there. Okay, okay Mike. Mike, Mike right, uh, Mike's obviously the musical director, so um, yeah. he, can, he can quickly summarise um, how he joined us. Well, I would say my influence is I'm probably one of the youngest people here by the sounds of it. So I was born in the eighties. So my, my gaming influence started when I saved up all my pocket money to buy a Game Boy in about nineteen eighty-eight and just, just playing Tetris all day, every day. And I was I was quite a quite an avid musician and over time I realised I could just combine two of my great loves and uh, do music for games and it's just sort of snowballed from there really. Okay. Mike from Clopus. Hello, other Mike. <laughs> okay, should we move on to um, Chris, Chris in a minute? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I grew up kind of in the uh, in the age of uh, actually Scott Adams here. His his games. I like one of my fun stories is like, I had three big influences when I was a kid that wanted me to make games. One was those early text adventures that Scott made. Um, two was Mist. I think so many people in my uh, time were really motivated by that. And then this crazy game that uh, Electronic Arts made called Adventure Construction Kit. And uh, what's been fun is I I actually. Got back, got into gaming just uh, about 15 years ago after having done a bunch of other things, um, but got back into gaming. And it's been fun. In the last several years, I got to meet all three of those influences, so including collaborating with Scott here. So it's been a, it's been a fun trip. And Scott? Yeah. Um, my gaming influences started way back in uh, high school when I got exposed to. Uh, gaming which was kind of unique because we're talking about the late 1960s and so this was on a mainframe and it was by a remote terminal with a teletype 
So not much chance of graphics back then. Later I got in uh, to writing my own games um, when I saw Colossal Caves, uh, which is the forerunner of all text adventures today. And that was running on the mainframe at work, and I played it for a week. I got in told, and I told my friends, hey, I'm going to write something like this on my Terra City and this, that toy. It'll never hold a game that big. So I decided not to listen to them, invented my own system for writing games, and everything started from there. Um, that is well, that is that is a fantastic story because um, to be at a time when you could count on one hand how many video games actually existed. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm sorry, uh, Scott. It's true, isn't it? I was just thinking. Yes. There's, there's, there's. You mentioned Colossal Adventure. There'll be Star Trek as well. That's where that's a really, really, really old. Very and... quick comment on Star Trek. I saw the mainframe Star Trek. This was before it was even in basic. It was unfortunate. When I converted a radar oh, wow. station in the Space Defense Command network, entire radar state tracking, this is a ground-based tracking radar station, I converted it to be a Star Trek game after hours, playing on the radar uh, console. So this may have been one of the earliest <laughs> versions of a graphic adventure, of a graphics game. Yeah. Yeah, it's just astonishing. I, I, I watched a wonderful video about someone converting it to the Atari 2600 for reasons. Like, well, why? Why would you this, this extraordinarily complicated game? Like, no, but they did it anyway because they just wanted to. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I highly recommend you dig out that video. It's an amazing video. It talks about all the different versions of this amazing, one of the oldest games ever made. Um, video games that is. It's a, and I played on the ZX eighty one. You know, it's one of the earliest games I played. So uh, I realizing, say not realizing that it was actually ten years old. Thinking it was like you ever, like figure, you. you ever feel like someone's just Fortran and you might as well say hieroglyphics. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I've never actually seen Fortran. It's just sort of this mythical it, thing. It was a giant step up from writing assembler all the time. Keep in mind, yeah. before that, we were we were on the bare metal. We're writing yeah. down there the bits and ones. Yeah, I'm actually turning switches on and off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as old as Scott, um, but I, I do remember, this is this mic from Clovis, uh, I do yes. remember starting out on the uh, Timex Sinclair, I think it was the ZX81. So you plugged it into your TV and you, you pushed the buttons and each button had multiple multiple combos in order to get the words because you didn't actually type in the words. You had to, to type in the key that had the command, uh, which was very time-consuming, especially considering that I didn't have the cassette to save my program, so I had to start oh, no. every single time. Oh. Oh, but no, my, my first... Yeah, that was, that was terrible. But it, it was a great learning experience. Uh, I remember the first, um, first real... Well, I don't say real, but the first PC game I played was a King's Quest. Uh, Ken and Roberta Williams, and that was that was amazing. That was eye opening. It's like, oh, you could do this, really. Um, so it, it was wonderful. Um, flash forward a couple of decades, uh, I got the extreme pleasure and uh, privilege of meeting Scott. And uh, later on, when he offered me a job, I just jumped at the chance. Yeah, what's well, that? Very storied histories there. And um, but my next question is really about your creative endeavors, all of which you've, you've done, all of, all of you are, are that, of that bent, so to speak. Um, and it's something that Dave knows I, I ask for because I'm fascinated by this particular topic. It's very difficult to answer, but when you're creating these narrative-heavy games, which they are, they have to be, 
that by their nature they are driven by the narrative they are not space war <laughs> or something similar uh, there's no real backstory to little spaceship and asteroids it's just really annoying um but what you do believe are your are your influences what do you think you draw from most when you are writing from this writing or creating these worlds that you have people inhabit it's a, I don't know what the other guys think. I mean, certainly when I sit down to write a text venture, um, my basic idea is I want to create something that I want to play. Um, and I think it, if I enjoy creating it, I'm hoping that others will will enjoy playing it because the love that I've put into the development will come through. And not to dispute what you said, but I think that... For me, like honestly, like I'm really motivated by this. Like I, I think of myself more as a storyteller than a gamer, and so in that regard, like it's the, it's more of the author's kind of impulse for, for me. Like I just like telling stories, and uh, and mm. and to a large degree, like the gaming is kind of just a way to do that. Um, so I, I, I think that's kind of a, a common uh, dichotomy, right? It's like people who are really sort of mechanics driven. Like I want the player experience to happen, and then there's more of the storytellers. And I think games need both. Yeah, for sure, definitely. I mean, it's certainly been one of the influences in um, in all of my game developments. I mean, we've done a lot of retro arcade games and other things, but it, throughout my gaming career, it's always been my love of text adventures that's um, come through and the idea to be able to tell a story with a narrative and um, and to engage the player. Right on. Anyone else want to, want to chip in? I mean, you... um, I'll try and end this, Scott. Uh, for me, my... I think my creative juices tended to come from all the um, previous creations that I consumed. I was a, I was a very avid reader, very large science fiction collection, non-fiction collection. My heroes tended to be science fiction authors. And, uh, I got to meet a few of them because of the games I wrote, which was really fantastic. I liked, like Chris, I liked stories. And I tried to tell stories, but also give people challenges so that they could be part of the story. And so that's, it, it, it's a mixture. It's not just telling the stories, but it's putting the puzzles in to let people be able to do what they want and feel like they're doing what they want in this world that I create as I, as I build up the pieces. Uh, anyway, the bottom line was, for me, it was just consuming a lot of books and movies. Huh. You know. <laughs> One of the reasons I played these tech adventure games because like the one of the earliest ones I did encounter, I'm afraid wasn't Colossal Adventure. I did eventually play that, but the very first one I remember um, was a game uh, was The Hobbit. I think I mm. think it was The Hobbit. Melbourne House. Yeah, Melbourne House. Yeah, Melbourne House. Yes, it was yeah. Scott. Yeah, it was um, Philip Mitchell, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, extraordinary game. And I just, I mean, I've read The Hobbit beforehand uh, because I was of that, you know, um, it was perfect for my age. I was only, when it came out, I was only about 13. So it's like, yeah, maybe you could argue a little bit old to read The Hobbit, but there it is. I did read it. and uh, um, Nonsense. I read it every year. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it wasn't soon after I got on to Pratchett, but that's a discussion for another time. uh, but uh, the the point being is that I just found the world. It's the inhabiting these worlds by others, 
and exploring yeah. those worlds. That's what, as a consumer, drew me in more than anything. Is this the, mm. whether it's you know Ian Livingstone's like Choose Your Own Adventure, like fighting fantasy books, or indeed you know, the Lord of the Rings, or or the Foundation series, or Dune, you know all of those universes. Um, that's that, that's what's always draw me into when, when but finding out just reading these other realities that people have made that's what i've always been drawn to by fantasy and sci-fi because it's like this is it's yeah this really sort of pushes the boundaries of of uh one's imagination whereas i would read contemporary fiction for the studying of the human condition that's where i get that from the interaction between people and how they overcome adversity or not as the case may be but uh, no, it's it's really good to hear that um, you get some sort of inspirations. That yes, it's the mere act of storytelling. Surely that's enough. Of course it is. Well, it is. I, I sometimes I wonder if it's enough just to write the damn thing, and whether or not anyone plays it or not is beside the point. <laughs> like it's just fun to create it. Yeah. True. True. I've got an odd answer, and it kind of riff off what you were just saying. Um, my inspiration at times is my thesaurus. And I know that may be odd because I think the words, the choice of words is actually can be a trigger for the imagination. Um, I come Absolutely. from a, a, a game design background. And, and so like the words matter. And, and especially when you're doing you know, a text adventure, text-based game, um, sometimes using the right words and right sequences can just take people to different places. And, and uh, that can be a really important part of, of uh, creating the game. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, next question for you all, and this one, I, I've always a bit of fun, this one, because um, it would help the audience may, in some cases, reacquaint themselves or indeed have an introduction to the concept of um, uh, graphic novels or indeed, um, or indeed um, uh, interactive fiction. Uh, can you, any of you, doesn't have to be all of you, but any of you, cite recent examples of the genre that uh, you would cite and go yeah that's that's really that's that's a really good one if you want to 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 be uh introduced to the genre and see where it's gone over the last 30 40 years that 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 over there is quite good it can be your own work of course it can but or indeed it, it might be like no never some sort of point to others but there's any examples you can think of that you think yeah that's a good one. That's a difficult question, to be honest. Yeah. I will say it, it's easier to talk about places where this genre has gone sideways. Um, and, and maybe, and maybe I'm just kind question. of saying it. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're but definitely I, I, going to delve into that in, 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 the, in the second half of the show. But is there any like titles or games you think that are worthy of a people's attention? Of course they are, because they exist, right? But... Especially oh, ones that you've recently encountered or something like that, or ones maybe you're currently playing, I don't know. Right now, for myself, I'm in Valheim a lot, and that's the uh, survival game where you're playing the Viking. Um, it's, it's an exploration. It's, a build, it's Minecraft meets EverQuest type of game. Uh, you can play it with friends. You can play it single player. You are basically just pitting yourself against the elements. And for me... That's that's incredible fun, and I can't think of any other game that was played that was like that. So it, it was eye opening. Yeah, it's, it's Valheim, isn't it? I think I yes. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a especially when the trolls arrive. Like, 
Look at the size of that. Yes, what is he doing? I, I spent three weeks building that. Get away, get away. <laughs> yeah, the trolls are terrifying in that game. And I love the fact that the graphics were like dulled down. It looks, it looks like something it's, from 2003. It's Minecraft graphics. Yeah, it's little pixels, but because they chose to do special effects with mists and fogs and everything, you don't really notice it. They're, yeah, yeah. They they really pulled it off. Minecraft, you look at Minecraft and you say, okay, when was this written? 1970? Yeah. But, <laughs> but when you play Valheim, it's like, oh, this feels like a modern game. It looks, yeah. the graphics look yeah. incredibly up to date. And you look close to it and go, wait, no, wait. Yeah. So it fools you. Yeah, it's really quite funny. It's like, wait, this looks like something from 2002. I know. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Uh, any any other sort of examples of narrative or genre or uh, anything that's sort of grabbing your attention you, right now? I've been playing Pendragon, uh, and so that was one that was on Steam. It, it's it, like visually, it's this cute little cartoony game, and the uh, and the gameplay is sort of a board game. You got to m- move your pieces, kind of a, a chess kind of thing. But I thought that was really interesting what they did story wise. They're just little bits, right? But it's it's sort of about this idea of uh, Arthur fighting Mordred and Guinevere and Lancelot coming to help him. But I. I really like the narrative design in that one. Yes, and it's such we, a rich history, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. well, mythology, mythology, myth- mythology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Pendragon because we've had the developers on the show, uh, Inkle. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, they've been on it several times. They've been they've been repeat guests, uh, as da- as Dave is now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, they've been can't on. Can't stay several away. Times. Can't stay away. And uh, yeah, we had uh, John King, John Ingle from Inkle. Uh, try saying that three times really fast, and uh, he uh, he and I both had a huge enthusiasm for the Pendragon mythology. And uh, now I'm really happy you raised that one because it is a yeah you're right that's completely narrative driven. Uh, there is combat in it, which is actually quite tactical and quite challenging in some regards. Very nuanced and has very 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 much about positioning. You have to be in the right place at the right time to execute yeah. the best move. But, you know, if you die, it's not the end of the world because then that causes another thing to happen. And we'll, we'll talk about that later on in the show. Um, but, uh, no, it's a good it's a good one to cite. Inkle really know how to do their narrative stuff in, in very strange ways. Yeah, we yeah. went up using that, that Ink engine also in our adventure game. So there's a lot of – I know we're talking about the, the Choose Your Own Adventure, but we have a, an adventure game where we use their whole engine. And I, I, I'm glad to give them my best regards because I love that engine. Yeah, we every now and again they'll just pop, pipe up and go, Chris, we've done a new game. Do you want to be? Can we be on the show? Because I met them at PAX East many, many, many years ago. In fact, is that 2013 PAX East or 2014? Um, it's when back in the day when I could travel. Can't anymore, can we? For an hour, not for not much longer. I'm double jabbed, but what does that matter, right? Uh, yeah, it but, seems to be um, going on forever, doesn't it? It seems to be. Seems to be. Seems to be. Um, but uh, no, that's that's good. Um, any more before we move on to the second half? Yeah, there there is one game that um, the technology fascinates me, and it's called AI Dungeon. I think they're on okay. actually on AI Dungeon Two, and uh, essentially, as it sounds, it's a it's a text based game that is driven by AI. Um, it, it's I guess I don't know if procedurally generated is the right word, uh, but basically, you can uh, the AI allows you to write the story that you want. Uh, without much limitation. Now I know they've gotten in some sort of trouble. I don't know too much about the the, the news wise, but uh, it, the technology itself 
uh, itself is fascinating. Uh, and I, I'm really kind of following that to see where it goes. That does sound interesting. I'll have to investigate. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to... Yeah? Something that, uh, that we do not to escape the rumor. Um, one of the unique things in the game is that we're basically, as the text comes out, you're writing a book. So right. your your story becomes a book, and it's totally different than anybody else's story. So however you play that game is going to make it a new type of book. So it really takes conversational adventure games, which is what we tend to call in our perfection, uh, to a different setting that's no longer just just a straight text is actually a novel being created. Okay, what? Making your own story, but mm, that's that's quite a challenge to. I mean, procedure generated can keep a create things that are, how can we put it, rote and sort of formulaic or spiral out of control. <laughs> as, as, David, cool. as David Braben found out when he discovered the planet Ars in Elite and had to remove it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, he ran an algorithm because he suddenly realised that, hang on, if all the names are made procedurally, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> there it is, the arse end of the universe. He actually found that. So, uh, Right, so that's the end of the first half of the show. Do you know, a little bit unusual, ladies and gentlemen, but don't worry, you know, we've got an unusual show, the good show. But uh, let's go on to the second half of the show. We're going to delve deep into the concept of interactive fiction visual novels. One of yours, some of yours, a lot of Have a go at defining what we mean by this particular genre. How does it? How is it defined as a genre? Now we're going to go with the words interactive fiction or what have you. But what, 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 what do you think? Can any of you sort of summarise it? What is it? What does it differentiate between other games or other genres? 
That's a difficult one. I, to be honest, I think that might be one for Scott straight away, if you don't mind, Scott. I think you're yeah. probably a bit of a master here. I'll, I'll jump into that. Um, to me, it means that you're setting up a world that the, the, the player uh, can understand and can interact with, and that then and then the key is that they're interacting. They're not simply just reading a story or watching a movie, whether it's a visual game or whether it's a text game. They're part of the story. They're causing the story to move forward, and they may have it move forward in totally different ways than the author even expected. So, conversational adventure, interactive fiction, adventure games. It's basically you, you the player, are joining with the game creator to make something new. Right. A different outcome. They open the box and something else happens because they open the box. Um, and what, a, for example. Hmm. What, what are the big differences between a text-based game, interactive fiction, and something that's more visual is that you're kind of required to use your imagination. If I say the box, uh, you can, there'll be you know, 50 different people with 50 different versions of what the box is yeah. in, their, in their mind. And so uh, that that gives them the freedom to use their man- imagination, and and it's kind of like the difference between reading a book and then going and seeing the movie. You know, you see the movie, oh, is that what they meant? As opposed to when you read it and you had this image in your mind. How many times have you seen a movie made on a book and you go, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be? Right, right. very much. <laughs> I mean, this. When you say things like um, uh, like Lord of the Rings as as a movie in the book, I mean I'm, I'm a massive fan of the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy, and and there's so many times you look at the film and you think, oh, that's not how it's got to be. <laughs> this is yeah. wrong. It's like all of a sudden we're like, you know, where's Glorfindel? The way, no, there's don't no. stop me on that one. <laughs> Who's that? She's not supposed to. No, that's supposed. to arm and a sword. Yeah, where's Tom Bobadil? Okay, fine, I'll get that. Yeah, right, fine. <laughs> I do think just for the sake of defining the genre, though, like you have to you have to draw some lines somewhere. And it seems that interactive fiction it needs to be very text heavy, um, and uh, and so that I mean that's kind of part of the, the the picture. So it's just worth saying. And and then probably. Probably gameplay tends to be pretty light. I think that that as soon as you start making a lot of gameplay, you're you're blurring that line, um, and so sometimes the gameplay is just make a choice, right? There may be a mini game or something, but I think pretty quickly you're you're out into another kind of game that's not a visual novel. I, I think generally, from from the developer's point of view, it's it's our job to we we obviously have a storyline and we we want how it's going to go from A to B to C, and it has an end game because that's the nature of games. And I think really our job is to give the players the the text um, and the information that allows their imagination to define the game. Yeah. Let them fill in the blanks. It's okay. Well, I That's, think you do anyway. Yeah. I think you do. If, yeah. you've, if you're reading a book, you will fill in the blanks. You, you, you already decide um, if someone's in a, in a great forest, you know what the trees like, uh, look like in your yeah. head. Um, yeah. You, there's no way you could possibly do that in text and you shouldn't because it, it takes away from the purpose of the game which is to give the player an interactive experience it, it is I a bit so of an interaction though it, Sorry, it, 
Okay, that's right. It is a bit of an interaction, though, because um, let's say you're in a, a text-based game, and, and the game says you uh, you come upon a tree. Um, mm. Most text-based gamers, you know, they know to type in "examine tree," and then you're going to get a message back telling you what that tree looks like. So it's really a conversation between the player and the author, um, and, and you, the author has to choose how much detail to give. And the player kind of can run amok with whatever their imagination is, putting in whatever they want to try and figure out what that is, especially in, in uh, parser-based games, as opposed to Absolutely. Uh, choose your own adventure. Right. It seems like we're saying there's also a reward loop. Like the, I think the reward loop for interactive fiction is the content. Uh, like, yes. like that's, that's what you do. That's what you get. You don't get points. You don't get whatever the stars aha. or something. Yeah, aha moment. Yeah. I think the big, big attraction as well is, is the freedom of, of what you can do. So many games these days are very linear. You know, go over here and do this, and then go over here and do that. But, it's got to feel like the sandbox. You've got, you've got the freedom to just, just go around and, and look at stuff and then investigate. I mean, one of the things I'm just saying, one of the things that drew me on to keep on playing The Hobbit was seeing the next image. Like, wait, that's yeah. what the troll hideout looks like? Really? Okay. Or, you know, it, it's just seeing the barrels in the elven hall and just trying to get in. And it's just that that was reward. That was that was the sense of, you know, yes, eventually I did finish it. But that, you know, the ability to that was what I was trying to do. The thing that drove me on and above everything else was seeing the next amazing piece of graphics, which, you know, now is very, very primitive. But at the time blew my tiny little mind. <laughs> I think it was it was quite a spice with the Hobbit. I mean, uh, a lot of people will cite the um, the quality of the parser and the um, and the AI, um, but it was it was very formulaic in the end of the day. But like you say, I think it really was wanting to follow the story through and to see how. For me, I think it was how they'd actually interpreted the book. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the fact that it came with a copy of the book is great. <laughs> yeah, indeed, <laughs> genius. It, it was an amazing piece of marketing. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, next question, then, and this one is definitely a design question, so we can now delve into this a little bit and talk about things you're probably more familiar with, not understanding what you've spoken about, you aren't, but this might be more comfortable to talk about. And I can't help, this is the, one of the earliest questions I thought of when I was preparing for this for this interview with you all, is um, what do you believe is the biggest advances, not the singular, but the biggest advances that you've seen in the genre that have helped it evolve from where from its early origins? What are the biggest thing you think that that really turned things around, or maybe not? I'm just any citing any piece of design or technology, I don't mind. Uh, but what's the one thing that you found that? Yeah, that's 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 a that's a step forward for the genre. Memory and distrust. <laughs> Absolutely. Keep in mind, the first game I wrote was ran in sixteen k total. That was the engine, the game, the database, everything. I write emails now bigger than that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The yep. very first text adventure I ever wrote was for the ZX eighty one, and um, and that was in a sixteen k. Um, and when you're sort of, I think we actually only had about 9k of that was actually available. Um, so it really was amazing. And the the need to be able to um, uh, compress all of your information and to, um, and to have everything very precisely. I mean, 
if we're looking at things like um, the Eye of Boak, um, it's actually quite a rambling piece of code because um, unintentionally, um, I kept thinking we should add that feature and, um, and it wouldn't be great if we did this. Um, so in retrospect, I'd probably like to sort of go back and, um, and review the engine, the way it's written. So Scott's absolutely right. It's been the ability, we've been given the, more freedom really um, by technology to express ourselves in different ways without the pressure space and the actual data. Okay, yeah. anything else? Yeah, I would change that there's actually a design thing. So um, let me let me tease Scott for a second because I mentioned like playing his games early on was was a great inspiration for me. But I'll tell you one of my like frustrations at one point was the parser model that he had at the time. So I had to at one point I had to put on a pair of glasses, but I didn't know a word for put on. And so I remember like literally like weeks, like how do I get past this stupid thing? And it just came down to a question of vocabulary. Like I didn't know the word dawn. You had to dawn glasses to move forward. One of the things that I like about kind of the newer designs is that they really they're they're trying to get the player to the content in a way that just feels like it's more gentle design. And I I really like. It. I think it makes the whole thing far more accessible, and you get a far more far more people playing. It does. I mean, the other thing I would say is that certainly um, technology has been able to bring um, accessibility of the games forward as well. Um, you certainly, I mean, with um, uh, with simply little things like being able to enlarge text, change colours, um, uh, to add actual um, voice overs for them. Yeah, one of the big, uh, I think, in my own opinion, uh, big technological advances that you see in the modern uh, text-based games now is sound. Uh, you know, before yeah. the text based games were silent, and now you can have sound effects, you can have soundtracks, uh, you can you can you can have uh, uh, voiceovers. Uh, so that that really brings a, another rich kind of sense to the game, and I think there's a lot to be had there still. Absolutely, flying colors. It's one of the few genres that is totally open to uh, the blind community. If you think about yeah. it, absolutely. Yeah, audio games are are really an underserved, uh, underserved genre. Uh, I know that there's a, a lot of uh, potential there, uh, and and text-based games are a real natural fit for that too. Mm, they definitely are. You're right because now, um, that whereas historically, like you said, uh, you're constrained a lot by memory and the, 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 what the computer could do, whereas now you almost got artificial constraints because, like, you, you know, I. Sitting here with a machine with thirty-two gigabytes of RAM, it's obscene. You know, when you think about if you told, told told someone that twenty years ago, why? Well, I've got to run Doom Eternal somehow, and it's just you know these these you know, we just that's what we have. And there's many. I've said this today when he's on the show before. It's just that when you're bug testing, you suddenly realise that about three hours into playing the game, the game starts slowing down. Like, why is it doing? Oh. There's a memory yeah. leak. There it is. <laughs> but you didn't know because it was gently filling up because the machine was got almost not bottomless, but it's almost. And uh it uh it wears you you know, it's it's your you're spoilt almost. I'm not that's not true, but you know what I mean. Uh and now uh you 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 got this sort of vast palette available to you, mm. not only visually, but also um, you know, you you've you've had language already. I say already, but that, that was your thing. And you, you know, back in the day, you had to edit down because you only had so much space for so many characters and all this stuff. 
because now you can be verbose and go, yes, I can, you know, wax lyrical um, yeah. uh, about certain events and really paint the world. And now you've got, like I said, sound. And you can actually add sound effects as you go through a forest and actually feel, hear your footsteps go through the said forest to add to the to the to that imagination. This might actually be one for our Mike because um, uh, obviously he's worked um, a lot on the sound effects, um, particularly for the Iabarak, and where we have different sound effects for different environments. I mean, maybe you want to say something, Mike, on that? Well, uh, not really very much else more i can say really it's it's a good thing that it's it's added to the experience but i was also going to say with the with, with more memory available it's also become a problem a nice problem of knowing when to stop as well i know when dave was saying that he's he wants to rewrite the the engine and add this and add that and add that um sometimes it can be a, a bit of a curse having too much memory because before you had to to write with within what memory you had, but now you, <laughs> you knew when to stop. <laughs> now everybody's Brandon Sanderson, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. If anything, I think perhaps um, uh, modern technology has made us um, as developers a little lazy. Uh, I mean, as Scott was saying, when you were trying to cram something into a um, 16K, um, and even sort of when we were sort of talking at the late 80s, you, you still weren't talking more than about 128K. And often that was um, RAM you had to page. So you couldn't, it wasn't all available to you. And I think now you just think, oh, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was yeah, just me then. <laughs> you, you, have, you have to be a lot more elegant when your resources are limited. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So, this next one doesn't always, this next question, I fully appreciate, before I ask it, that it doesn't apply to every interactive game or a fiction game or visual novel. I get that. But it's one I have to ask because I'm sure our audience would probably want me to ask it. And it's the subtle art of creation of puzzles. Um, what is everyone's take on when they feel that they have to create something to engage the player with a bit of interaction of thing they have to overcome we've already spoken about some of the puzzles and uh, the most infamous one of course being the babel fish from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um that's if you haven't done that listeners just have a go i think it's freely available infocom game that uh yeah oh boy that was that was so much fun douglas it's about it's about a six-piece puzzle isn't it the best puzzles, I think, are when the player gets an aha moment. Where they, yes. When they hit the puzzle, they don't know what to do, and they have to sit back and think and come up with different ways to solve it. And sometimes they don't have to, it doesn't have to be especially hard, but it has to be satisfying. Right. It just has to be, oh, I got it. Why didn't I think of this earlier? It's so obvious once I've done it. Hmm. Yes, definitely. I think I think the the puzzle needs to give the player a feeling of um, satisfaction and not um, as um, as Chris from Soma was just saying. Um, in the old days, there were too many developers who would rely on um, an obscure um, vocabulary to actually solve the um, problem. And these days, we do at least have the ability to. Uh, to create a kind of puzzle that can be very lateral and um, and where the player can actually, at the end of it, think, oh, why didn't I think of that in the first place, as Scott was just saying? 
think a lot, a lot of it comes out in testing as well because puzzles will, will evolve over time. Yes. So once you, yes. you alpha yes. test it and beta test it, you'll get feedback and says maybe this needs to change or I couldn't do that. And yes. you'll, you'll change it. So one, yeah, of, very... one of my biggest inspirations when I was writing my classic games was my playtesters. I'd get the game 25, 30% done. Then I would, then I, before it was completed, then I'd put it down in front of playtesters and let them play. And they gave me ins, infinite inspirations as they would try different things. And I thought, you know, I never even thought of that myself. <laughs> Where could I go with that if I did something like that? If I allowed the player to do this, what does it mean? Absolutely. That certainly shapes a lot of our games. Um, and as Mike was just saying, um, even when you just put it out to a small number of beta testers, um, you you really can't see um, all the options that players are going to want to attempt because it is such a wide ranging genre and you're not just stuck with a list of words and you've got to choose five or six of them. They, they will try things that there could be a million variations. Um, and it, it's really quite fascinating how the other players will approach you things you have in your head as being fairly straightforward it's definitely much di more difficult to create a parser based game than, than something that's like multiple choice or choose your own adventure i mean where you're giving them choices um yeah I, I think the thing i worry about these days is is um that tension between being frustrated with a puzzle and really kind of having that aha moment that scott talked about you know that kind of sense of satisfaction it's mm. like how how do you get that um, especially in this day and age where we're like, you know, kind of 24 seven, you know, three point plans and people's attention span is not quite as what it, what it used to be. Uh, uh, people are, uh, want things immediately and, and, and text based games are not like Twitch games. They're, they're not, they don't, not necessarily fast. So it's, you have to be kind of in a mood for doing that. And so then setting the mood in your game is uh, quite the challenge too. Oh, agreed. Well, I think I think we're in quite a sort of throwaway culture, really. And um, uh, there's, if you're going to sit down to play um, a decent text adventure, you you've got to be committed to it, really. You've got to actually think this is something I really want to play, and that's obviously sort of I think uh, really is our audience these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very very good responses, and it's a, it's a subtle art. It really is, and you're right. The only way you're going to best puzzle is the, uh, will not survive its first encounter with the wild. Like, <laughs> never. <laughs> to paraphrase a famous saying, yes. Yeah. It, um, as someone, I'm a DM, I've run a lot of t tabletop role-playing games, as they call them these days, just to differentiate from the other form. And the amount of times I set something up and the players go dashing off to something that's just not relevant. Like, Where are you going? Come back here. <laughs> yeah, I... I DM for my uh, for my kid um, and uh, and my wife actually we both we play Dungeons and Dragons um, fairly often um, and straight away I, I can spend a week coming up with um, a plot and within about ten minutes into the game I'm improvising. <laughs> yep, yeah. Who's that? Just some bloke sitting at the table. What's his name? Gavin. Yep, okay. <laughs> What's Gavin do? Is it apprentice <laughs> yeah. blacksmith? Oh really? How long have you been doing that? couple of months i don't know just making it up just like it's yep. not it's none of this matters there's major npc right next to them they're focused on now yep. gavin and, and, and before you know, you know they're attending gavin's wedding <laughs> they are they are 
That's my go-to name for NPCs when I run out of ideas. It's Gavin. <laughs> it doesn't you know, matter what gen- gender either. Just Gavin. <laughs> it's really interesting think... that you bring up DMs uh, because yeah. one of the advantages in Dungeons and Dragons, you have a DM that's able to look at the body language and the responses of the players yes. and kind of adjust. Mm. And so, yes. what what we have to figure out is how do we do that? Like we can tell how long a person has been, you know, typing or, you know, hasn't been typing or, you know, what they type and the response. So you can kind of tell that. But the, you know, the AI to figure that out is really interesting. It's a really um, challenging puzzle uh, to kind of get that interactivity right. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, as you were saying, we, as a sort of developer, we can, we can, we can time the lack of input on the keyboard. Um, we can give them prompts. Um, and whether it's an AI saying, you know, that, um, John taps his fingers on the table. Um, but you, we don't get that interaction. We don't actually get to um, see how they're feeling. And we also don't get to um, watch the discussions that players have in Dungeons and Dragons. So it's a very similar process, but it's, it's a very different focus. Mm. And how do you help a player without ruining it for the player? And does this this player want it to be ruined? Maybe they really, really need it to be, or maybe they really, really don't. But we don't know. Uh, No. You almost have to, like, create difficulty, uh, different difficulty settings. Uh, If you play on hard, then they don't want to know. If they play on easy, then they want to know, you know, kind of thing. But but it's trying to get the game, isn't it? To try and respond to that. Um, yeah. Because I mean, I'm I'm really very much against the idea of um, text adventures with, like you say, easy levels of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly something that, again, a technological advance is something we weren't able to do in the 70s and 80s. Right. We can now use the technology to uh, to interpret how the player is um, actually playing and um, try to um, give them more sort of focus and give them subtle hints when they need it. Push, push, go that direction. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> yeah. Big yellow oh, exactly. arrow pointing down. There, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, down. <laughs> yeah. So, excellent responses. Thank you very much. The next question. I told you I've got loads, but we'll be editing down. Don't worry. Because uh, some of them are thinking we've already answered already. But I just want to talk about something that has become really prevalent in the last 10 years for good or ill. Uh, but I want to compare the two genres because sometimes people get confused between the two. Um, in terms of world building and character story arc, how is this weighted in terms of what we're talking about today, which is interactive fiction and visual novels, compared to computer RPGs? That's a, an interesting question. I mean... It really depends. I mean, because I mean, going back to the eighties, I mean, there was there was quite a sort of um, thin line between um, the idea of a text adventure, for the example, for the ones that um, that Scott was writing in the seventies um, and early eighties, um, and the actual RPG genre. There was definitely um, a, a crossover between the two, where you would define a character, you would choose like a wizard or an elf or a warrior, and you would have actual stats. Um, uh, so. I'm thinking sort of that the real difference is that one is, one is more sort of um, linear, which is why I sort of feel that um, a lot of the RPGs are now, because what you're really doing is talking about um, character building in RPG when a text adventure is really about, um, as we've discussed before, um, feeding the player's imagination. 
I would agree with that. I think I think that sort of the nature of the RPG is like, as the player, I am picking up a role, right? That's that's the definition. Where in most interactive fictions, you're you're only making sort of nominal choices, but the it's really the author who has decided who you are and what you're going to be. You may succeed or fail, in sort of accomplishing a certain goal, but in a pretty real way, you're not you're you're not the the author, so to speak. We're in an RPG. You are exactly, yeah. Anyone else got a chip in for that? Because it is, I think it's covered. It is, it's very much more a world-building experience, I believe. That's this is where I'm getting from this question: is that in 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 the interactive fiction games you're playing, you're really invested in the world, whereas in RPGs, you're more focused on the human interaction. But that's, I think, is an oversimplification because a lot of uh, the text adventures are based on what the character is doing and how they're interacting with others. So, hmm. There's one. something you said there that I, if, and I don't mind to, to, to bump, but there's, there's actually this idea of like world building and also experiencing a world is what's one of the things that got us really excited about, uh, mm. about this as a genre is if for one thing, like for so many games, it, the world building effort, the, the kind of just the, the number of hours that goes into that is, is one of the bigger, um, expenses. Um, but then it seems like such a shame if I get to experience that world once and in one way sort of feels inefficient but what i love is the idea of having a rich world that for people like me like that's the fun part is making the world but then what i like about uh about visual novels or interactive fiction is it becomes sort of the lowest possible lift for the often for the reader and for the game developers like how do you experience this world in a way that's only kind of a game but then it becomes a gateway to all the other games and so what i really like is where let me experience this world in lots of ways and Here's an interactive fiction. Here's an RPG. Here's an adventure game. And so the idea, like I'm sharing this world, and that, that's what uh, that's what Scott and, and I like. What we've been trying to do with our Redwall world is how can I see this world from a lot of different places and a lot of different experiences, and that's what I think makes it really fun. Mm, definitely, from a developer's point of view, that is it, and it's um, and it's being able to to express that um the joy that we have um to the player i think that um that i i find far, far partly the most challenging but also one of the most rewarding parts of um developing text adventures okay okay um i'm looking at my questions here and i think one i really want to ask this one because it's it's a little bit controversial this one because historically this happened in a lot of games in the early years and that doesn't happen so much now but I want to know your position as character death. Um, what is, you know, based in the genre does, yeah. So, so is, is it okay to kill the player off? Also, you know, oh God, don't walk into an area with no lamp because you'll be eaten by a groove. Oh dear, eaten by a groove. Yeah. Um, kill them all, just, just, kill them all. Yeah, just um, as, a, as an adjunct to that, as a follow-on, what have you done in your personal working life to avoid the concept or this, the problem of what is known as dead man walking? Well, basically, you've skipped something, you didn't know it, the game has let you progress to an area, even though you missed something early and there's no way for you to return to that, and now you realise you cannot succeed without doing that thing earlier. What have you... So basically, first of all, death and dead man walking syndrome, as it's known. I'm going to jump in there because I was... My whole philosophy of this has changed over the years. My early games um, were 
completely one-sided. It's like, okay, you either make it through properly, or if you've got to start over, you're going to start over. Mission Impossible is a good example. There's no way in the world anybody could have a secret mission now. That to play that game from the beginning to the end, because you've got to learn things. The only way you can learn them is by dying over and over and over and over again. When you take the flip side, the new games that I've done, they don't, you don't ever, ever have to start the game over. If you make a mistake and escape the game or on Adventureland XL, there's always a way to rectify it. You can go back. You can fix things. You're never, ever having to start over. So I, I know why I did what I did early on, but I like what I'm doing now. And yet, I still see the players. Oh, we've got uh, Adventureland XL in early access, so it's still being developed. We still see players going in, playing the game, and starting a new game. Even though telling them over and over, there's no reason to. You can experience the whole game. You don't have to start over. And yet they do. Go figure. <laughs> I think I'd agree with um, Scott, though. And actually, I know that Scott and I have um, had a brief conversation on this um, over Twitter about character death. Um, the the way that we we approached it um, in the Iaborak was that if you um, died, you go straight back to um, your starting um, location, and you just lose some um, points. Um, and it, it's it, there's no way that you can actually be stuck in the game because you can't lose anything um, uh, that prevents you from carrying on. Um, we worked a little more on that with um, Stranded 2, which was the sequel to an old ZX Spectrum game that I wrote, um, where when you actually die, um, you return um, uh, to a certain point, but you lose objects um, and they become scattered around, but again, in areas where you can find them again. So it was really more of a sort of penalty for death rather than actually um, saying, well, that's it, the game's over. Anyone else got uh, thoughts on? It's a, it's a it's a touchy subject, but uh, I think it's sort of settled down over the last few years. But uh, anyone else got some thoughts on this? It always seems to be like part of the conversation is about. Well, one is this is the conversation like back in the day, like player death meant that I could put another port in the machine. So there, there's a partly that is a business model. But once you have a, a console game, and it's not like that, then death has to become this question: like, what's the purpose of it? Um, and so I really like. Um, what you just said about kind of scattering stuff, sort of Minecraft does this too, right? Like you, your your stuff is what scatters. It's not typically lost forever unless you're in the lava. And I, I like about that because it feels like death has meaning without it being crippling. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, and, and notion like, and, you know, you have to you know, make sure you're sleeping, you know, <laughs> in the right place. And so it makes you conscious of that. So, it's, so you're not just sort of like willy nilly, you know. I, I really like that, and that feels the most rewarding balance to me. Mm, definitely, it is. An, it is an interesting question because uh, with death, you, if you have something like permadeath, where you die, you got to start over. Then, really, your choices have consequences. Like you know, it it, it raises the level of of risk. It raises the level of of uh, tension. Uh, on the other hand, um, if the death uh, to the player, from his perspective, or his or her perspective, is meaningless. Then you know, it's not really serving its purpose. Uh, and in these days, you have so many different. It's not just death. You have so many different ways of dealing with death. 
you know, do they start from the beginning? Uh, do they go to a save point? Uh, do they just lose some points? You know, what what is what is the game point of doing death? And if there is no point, then, well, you really don't need it. But uh, I think in most of the early games, the point of death was to teach the player something, to let them know, okay, there's this other way that you need to learn of doing things before you progress. And then once you learn that, you'll have that skill and you can progress even further. Um, so it became more of a teaching tool, I think. Um, and you need to consider that uh, when you're putting the design of the game together. Is, is what, is, what, is, what is its meaning? Definitely. I think, I think what Chris was actually sort of hinting at the, in the original games, um, when you say the point of death was contentious, um, it was often because you, when you said you obviously don't go into dark places, but there were so many games that I played um, when I was younger where um, it would say there is um, a cave to the west. You go west, it's dark, something falls on your head, you're dead. Um, but there was no indication ever that um, it was going to be dark in there. And I think that's when the issue became contentious. Mm. So I think really as a developer and designers, it's really for us to um, to give the player some information about the danger that they could potentially be entering. Like yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Death has uh, evolved over the years as well, because 30, 40 years ago, like you said, you had to put a quarter in the machine if you died. But nowadays you don't don't necessarily put a quarter in your PC. So I think it's, it's a case that death isn't as much of a handicap as it was in the olden days, but you still want to, to get that balance so you're not annoying the player so they rage quit, but also give them something to, to actually aim for as well moving forward. Yeah to, yeah, to keep the players themselves actually engaged, definitely. Unless it's Dark Souls. Anyway, <laughs> had to. I'm talking about There's always an exception. There's always one. Um, but one of the games I remember, it was a text adventure that gave me a sense of dread. Everything I did, anything, the most benign thing could lead to my death. And there was a game called Urban Upstart. Uh, oh, Urban Upstart, yeah, by, uh, again, Melbourne House, wasn't it? it? I think it was. Actually, I think it was. I think someone else. What in Houston? Can't remember. Have to look it up. Have to look it up. I'm going to I'm gonna have to look it up now. <laughs> yeah, please do. I can't type it because it'd be wrong. But uh, feel free. But yeah, open up stars. And that game, putting on a pair of dungarees could end up in your death. Like, oh, don't, don't do that. You're going to get punched in the face now because you're wearing the wrong colour scarf. It was very much a, a description of 1980s Britain. It was quite extraordinary. Uh, and uh, to this day, it was... Uh, yeah, it, 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 everything we did, I mean, we, because myself and my very good friend, who we're still friends with, uh, we would often sort of uh, mutter about extraordinary things we had to do in that game in order not to die. Um, and yeah. again, if the game is anchored and built around a concept of impending doom, have at it. Fine. If that's the, if that's the concept of your game, that anything you could do could end up in your untimely demise, then... That has to be accepted from the outset on the part of the player, provided it's introduced early. If it suddenly happens, whereas up until then the narrative was it's okay, everything's fine, and all of a sudden you go, oh, now you've just you've drawn a lot, then you've crossed the line here. That's it, you're you're out. Hmm, that's that's not uh, right. I'm gonna have to apologise to Melbourne House. It was actually Richard Shepherd's software, which I think it made was. things like um, Transylvanian Tower and yeah. um, Super Spy, I think, which were. Yeah. They were very simplistic text um, games, which is probably why um, why I was getting a little confused because I don't <laughs> recall them ever really doing proper text adventures. 
No, no. But this that particular one was it was a big hit. It was quite good. It's quite good. It touched a lot of nerves. My next Always question. a worry. Yeah, yeah. My next question um, is progression. How do you indicate what are the tools that you you've used in the past and are currently using to give a sense of player that where they are in the story? If you feel mm. there's a need to do that, definitely one for Scott for the beginning. Yeah. I know going from the end instead of the beginning, we know in Escape the Glimmer we put in something we call poppers. And they're little uh, paw prints that light up when you reach a certain spot. And you're progressing through the chapter, and it's chapter-based, and you have chapters that you go through. So the player knows, okay, I'm one-third the way through this chapter, and I know, know what's happening. Um, it, it's going to depend on the game because Escape the Groomer tends to be more linear. You go through a chapter, you have to go back and revisit that chapter. You go into Adventure Land, though, it's more a sandbox game because the whole world opens up to you and you can be all over the place and you can solve puzzles and do things in a totally different order. How does the player know what they're getting when they get there? Uh, for that game, it's a scoring system. You do a score and you can say, oh, okay. My score is progressing towards 100%, but I'm not there yet. So I have a sense of purpose. Other games, they're, they're, you don't know what's happening. It, it may be a sandbox, but you have no way to determine how, how you're doing. People like different things. Um, in general, having a reward that pops up and shows them what they're doing resonates with folks. It's like, okay, I'm feeling accomplished. But in the Explorer, may not care because they just want to go around and see everything. They don't care about accomplishing stuff. But it depends on the type of player. Mm, absolutely. Think, I mean, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I do like that this this is a, I think, a real opportunity for, for the game designer. Um, and I'll, I'll give you examples. Like if, if you agree with the conceit that in a in an interactive fiction game, sort of the content itself is the reward, if that's the thing that people want, then letting them know what content exists, what they've experienced, you know, how kind of where they maybe took a different fork in the road. I think that's a huge opportunity. It can be a lot of fun. And uh, like we're, we're just about to launch a mobile game here for some more interactive fiction. So this is that's one reason it's so timely for me. And we spent a lot of time working on what's essentially a map for the player. And boy, I remember back in the day when you would buy these books um, about like Zork and that kind of stuff. And, and part of it was this sense of a map and you could see oh, I didn't know there was a dragon. I never experienced that. I didn't know there was a troll over here. And so it really encouraged me to go back to those places because you want, that's why I'm here is to experience all the content. Um, and so if you give that the, the player those tools to see what they have, what they've missed, not only is that fun for them, I think that's how in this business world, like that's a great way to monetize it because if, if that's what they're buying, then show them that they can buy it. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and we, we've we gone for a scoring system um, uh, for both the Iowark and um, Stranded. Uh, but you can actually complete the game. I, certainly, I can't remember what it is for Stranded, but you can complete um, Iowark on about 72%. Um, and I think it, it enables players to get a sense of not only progress, but also it gives the games a replayability, which um a lot of text adventures used to have because it was very sort of um linear and once you once you achieve the aim of it um that was it the, the game was done 
Uh, yeah, there's, there's, I've played lots of lots of different text adventures. I think Infocom were the earliest ones that did points, but uh, sorry, I interrupted someone. Uh, that's okay. Uh, what I was going to say is it, I want to follow on kind of with what Chris was saying is one of the real ways you can show progression, and I think there's a lot of potential here, is change, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be character development or how the world itself changes. If mm. you can show through the narrative uh, a, a change uh, in a person's personality or in growth or in how the world developed, I think that's there's a real reward there for the um, for the player uh, slash reader. Mm, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's not really something we've really touched on um, from our games, but the idea that AIs um, will react depending on the player's action, I think, is a is a fascinating um, path and something that. Um, yeah. That in future I'd really like to um, develop more. I've yeah, a agreed. Of quick, you've got a couple of questions here, but I think I'm going to focus on just the one. And this is a bit of fun, considering uh, some of the how long you've been working in the field. So I'm going to. This is probably something you've always wanted to do, maybe. But if you could go back in time to your earlier selves and uh, sort of say, well, what you've done here, you could do maybe this instead with this particular game. I know it's a very dangerous thing to do for any creator to do because we all know nothing's ever finished. I know that. Um, but is there anything you could go back to your earlier self? In terms of game design, nothing else. Otherwise, we're going through a deep philosophical discussion. Uh, but uh, just considering your earlier works, what would you have liked to have changed based on what you now know? Um, it's, it's, it's difficult, really. I mean, because... Um... Games have been shaped not just by by what we know, but also by the way the industry's changed, um, mm-hmm. by requirements from players. Um, I think um, were were I to um, go back and look at some of my earlier sort of text adventures, we're going to go back to sort of the ZX Spectrum um, days. Uh, I think oddly, I'd have um, I, I'd have tried to make the games a little more um, a more streamlined. I was trying to squeeze so much out of um out of the very limited systems that I think in some cases that perhaps they were a little unwieldy. So that's certainly something I'd go back if I was um, going to change the older games. But for for the more modern ones with with the technologies we've already discussed, um, I I don't think I'd really particularly change um, much of them. No, but I, no, no but, I appreciate that, but it's more of the the embryonic stuff, maybe like you know, the embryonic stuff, definitely. There? Yeah, it's like maybe do it like this. Anyone else? Oh, it's like, like, go ahead, Scott. No, go Well, I was just gonna say I agree with that. Like, I think that the the I've been having this conversation for years now. It's like the gaming has moved. I think from basically where we're we're craftsmen trying to figure out like how does this stupid thing work? How do I squeeze another, you know, more, more memory out of it? Like it's moved from that um, to where now you really have far more of an artistic challenge. And I, do, I don't only mean that in terms of writing a good story. I also mean that in terms of good design, you know, good mechanics, like all those things can become, there's so much closer to things as like whatever you can imagine we can probably build. I, I'm sure that there are people pressing the limits, but you know what I mean? And so in that regard, questions like, how do I like? What exactly am I trying to accomplish, and what's the goal for the for the user? That's what I would change instead of like fiddling so much with how do I do this? Like, what's the syntax of this stupid thing? Um, just to have more room for really making the 
the art piece, which is, you know, or, or the design piece doing that really, really sings. That's what I would do different. Nice. I think Scott had a comment there. Uh, no, I was just agreeing with Chris. That was that's uh, well put. The technology would have been nice to have the new technology then, but we didn't. We did the best we could. Um, it's it's the interface with the player. Can can we make it so the player's enjoyment is spent? For example, the permadeaths that I had in earlier years. I don't think that now was a good idea. I think that was true. It was pushing the world of play. Um, how do we... The lessons learned over the years of writing games is we've got to put the player first. Not what we think player is, but what does the player really want. And sometimes the player doesn't even know that themselves. Don't ask them what they want in the survey. Because when you see them play the game, you'll, see, you'll end up seeing something totally different. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is a limit, though. I mean, there's a limit there, isn't there? Because on the one hand, like, I, I think that we can go too far and be like, hey, whatever the player wants, we give them. But then we're no longer making something. Like, now we're just monkeys kind of pulling their strings. So I do think, I do think that we can take that too far. Yes. There's a balance. I think we can, but I think, it, I think really, it, it's the fact that we've got the opportunities to be able to... Um, give the players more sort of um, flexibility in our design. But I really do agree with you, Chris, really, that it's we, we've become more storytellers now and, um, and it is much more about the sort of artistic interpretation um, of the games simply because we things have changed so much um, that we're not chasing a single bite anymore. Um, or in some cases, I remember trying to, um, trying to find a single bit um, by shifting... Um, um, various um, registers um, and so I, th I, th I think that's really from uh, our point of view that's how our designs have changed now that it, it is allowing us to tell a story more than um, than trying to squeeze the last bit out of a machine yeah and then of course you have other platforms now I mean I've been playing a lot of VR games recently and I mean there's definitely something there I mean one of the games I've recently played called The Mask Maker which I highly recommend uh and that, that has you actually going into other worlds by making masks in a workshop, placing them on your virtual face with your own virtual hands, and then being transported to other worlds. And uh, that sort of, I keep on going back to that game thinking that that's, that's very imaginative to way of looking. And it, it is an action adventure at its core, uh, and you can, you know, fail. Uh, but uh, there's definitely. You know, VR's not going anywhere, but looks of things. <laughs> and um, not going away, that is. And uh, mm. certainly a, a platform that um, I think there's a place for what you're creating there. How that works, I don't know. I'm not a designer, but uh, there might be something there. There probably something. I'm glad you brought there. that up. Yeah. Because I'm really curious to see what happens there, too. Um, and partly it's like, as soon as you say text adventure, then maybe then maybe not. I certainly don't want to read text in VR. But the idea of like, <laughs> what does what does storytelling look like in VR is something I'm very, very interested in. Yeah. yeah. But, but then we're really just heading down sort of the MMO route, aren't we? And um, although, the, I mean, certainly online role-playing games uh, and the their um, history is certainly based around the text adventures um, because it's something they've grown from. And I think that really would be the direction for VR. 
Okay. In what in what way? Like I'm not sure I'm tracking. What do you what do you mean by that? Mm. Oh, the, basically, I think if you're talking about VR, like, uh, maybe it's an interactive um, novel. Um, but again, all you'd really be doing is um, either sort of part, uh, participating in, say, for example, an interactive story where it'd be like you would be um, a player in um, a movie. Um, and I think really that's the kind, only kind of way that VR could be used um, or expanded um, to include a similar genre to text adventures. Okay, I get it. It's a point and click adventure. Really, VR is just the next step up from point and click. Yep, it is. Yes, you just don't have to do hunt the pixel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just waiting for holodeck. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've played Star Trek Bridge Crew, but that's not quite the same. <laughs> anyway, um, I'd like to sign off with everyone. If you, each of you could sort of like say what you're working on and where they can find it. I know you're working on different games, and yet you were brought together as a. And you know, I bought the bundle on 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 Steam, and it's fantastic. It's really been distracting me away from uh, other things, which is fantastic. So, uh, Dave, do you want to start and just go around the table, the virtual table, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, um, we're actually moving back to action games for our next um, actual next release, which uh, should have been released at the end of last month, but. Um, various distractions have got in the way and um we, we've struggled with some design concepts so we decided to delay the release but we're next releasing a top-down shooter called um xanon which is inspired very much by the um classics of the 1980s um and on a more adventure related um theme we are working on a 3d rpg which will actually be our first um step into the world of 3d gaming Luck with that. We're looking looking forward to that. I'll be back on to chat about it. I'm sure I will. Who's next? Uh, that's Mike from Clopus. Because obviously Mike and Scott, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for us uh, right now, our big focus or a focus is for us to uh, work on Adventureland XL. Uh, it's in early access now. We really want to get that nailed down, uh, add uh, some of the content that still needs to be added and, and get that in a, a, a form that uh, the players really enjoy. Also, another thing that we've got going that people can look at is um, Final Pilot. You can go to finalpilot.com. It's a, a 2D battle royale in space. Uh, multiplayer up to 60, 120 players at one point. So okay. Those are our two efforts. So we, we didn't talk about that at all, but that's a that's also out there right now and currently available. And Adventureland XL is uh, just what it sounds like. Adventureland and the letters X and L, which stand for two things, extra large and also the X and L's Roman numerals for 40, which is the 40th anniversary salute back to the original Adventureland game. The whole original Adventureland game is in there, plus a lot more. We're also trying to make sure it still has a retro feel to it. So... Make it through the base game if you want to find out what's new. So if you think you know the game, you don't. Ah, I love the bait and switch. It's been working for decades. <laughs> it's awesome. And, uh, if they want to find out more about it, go to clopus.net. C-L-O-P-A-X, clopus.net. Okay. Well, we'll make sure we put that into the show notes. Thank you very much. 
And I know for, for us here at Soma, the two things we're working on really heavily are um, we're finishing up the Scout, which is our 3D adventure game, um, which has a, a lot of text adventure uh, components in it, but it's primarily an, uh, an adventure game. But the one that fits here is we're just about to release a mobile game called Lost Legends of Redwall, which has uh, which has several stories inside of it that are all based in that Redwall world. Um, and it's it's an engine that we made ourselves, but it's pretty much in that choose-your-own-adventure genre. Um, and uh, and that should be out on iOS and Android by the time the show goes live. Excellent. Excellent. Well, if I, been... yeah, sorry. If I could, I'd love to give an, another answer to the previous question if we've got time. Yeah, yeah please. Yes, we've got time. One, one of the things that I would love to have changed about my game, and, and this isn't, uh, I guess you wouldn't think about this in terms of a text-based game, is uh, DLC or episodic content to the point where, and, and you know, people in the interactive fiction community almost do this on their own. You see a lot of people who are becoming authors of their own text adventure. But what if you had a text adventure that refreshed itself every month, you know, where you come back into that same world and you almost have like a, a, a mod, a text adventure modding community where they could enter the world and, you know, use the characters that you created in new and fresh ways so that it was replayable every month or every so often. Uh, I think that's, that's probably where I would have, have changed or would at yeah. least looked into. Yeah, that's a fascinating at, idea. Look at Life is Strange, Kentucky Route yep. Zero. You know, yeah. these, are, these are ones that immediately spring to mind. Um, not Half-Life, we don't talk about that. Um, although you know Half-Life Alex is amazing apart from that come on Valve can't count to three apparently anyway um, (laughs) (laughs) I know sick burn Um, so um, thank you very very much to all of you (laughs) being so open and honest about the creation of this extraordinary game genre which I'm so happy still exists we all know how point and click adventures hit that uh hit that wall in the early 90s was it mid 90s when they had a terrible terrible cat hair related puzzle they went okay fine we're done with you uh, but <laughs> thanks thank, thankfully they managed to turn things around thanks to widget eye and others who uh brought the genre back but it was in doldrums but bubbling away in the background throughout all these decades has been text adventures uh and they uh they are still very, very important games, and I'm very happy to spend so much time with you, all of you. Uh, many of you invented the genre in some some regards, so thank you for doing that and still chiseling away. Very much appreciated. I've got to say, guys, I think it's been it's been lovely to actually be able to have this time with you and um and to actually talk about, like you say, a, a genre that a lot of people would think had disappeared decades ago, but in fact has always been sort of just there in the background and, and still has a massive following. Indeed. Well said. So, uh, you're more than welcome to come back, any of you, to chat about what you've got coming up or something in the future, as Dave knows. It's, we have return guests, so if you want a more one-to-one experience, if you like, for, for one of your titles, by all means, do so. But until then, thank you all so very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, 
Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, canaanrinse.com.